0: You're listening to The Partially Examined Life, a philosophy podcast by some guys who were at one point set on doing philosophy for a living, but then thought better of it. Our question for episode 87 is something like, uh, what is human freedom? We read three works by Jean-Paul Sartre. His essay, Existentialism is a Humanism, from 1946, the essay, Bad Faith, which is chapter two of part one of 1943's Being in Nothingness, and his play, No Exit, from 1944, Join the discussion, get the texts, and lots more information at partiallyexaminedlife.com. This is Mark linton speaking to you from Madison, Wisconsin,
1: in good faith. This is Seth Paskin, being what I am not, in Austin, Texas. This is Wes Alwyn in Boston, Massachusetts.
2: This is Dylan Casey,
1: factually in Middleton, Wisconsin. What is the adverb for facticity? You're in Middleton and you're facticity, are you not? Yeah, with facticity. It's so not factually, it's factically. Factically.
2: Is There's is a word? Is Dylan Casey factically from Middleton, Wisconsin.
0: No, that doesn't work either.
3: But to be in Middleton is to be in bad faith. <laughs> because it's a metastable place in the middle.
1: <laughs> yeah, and I grew up in Midland, Michigan. So oh. I'm full of being in the middle. No wonder you're an Aristotelian.
3: <laughs> all right we milled two philosophical jokes out of that i think his <laughs> boat is called the golden mean
2: no no though it is yellow
0: <laughs> let's put out the ground rules we didn't do that last time ground rules for our discussion include number one try not to assume that our audience has read what we're talking about or has any other background in philosophy number two don't make arguments that hinge on something other than what we've agreed to read don't say you'd understand me if only you'd read Sartre's later work, No Exit Two on Constipation.
1: <laughs> you'd only understand this if you'd listened to the unreleased Beastie Boys album No Exit to Brooklyn. <laughs> oh, that's nice.
0: Number three, we will be rigorous and exact in all that we say unless doing otherwise would be potentially more long winded. I mean I mean amusing.
3: <laughs> Which was amusing.
0: so we return at last to existentialism although it feels like we never left
2: some of us think of it as at last some of us think of it otherwise
0: (laughs) (laughs) what do you mean (laughs) i'm sure we'll get into it you don't want to talk about angst and despair (laughs) and dread and forlornment all those cool words mentioned in passing in our first essay that
2: Sartre denies as being part of existentialism?
0: No, no, no. he defines them. He just yeah. he defines them to that Oh, well, that's not such a downer to be in anguish. When you're in anguish, you're just realizing the full weight of your actions that they have moral import. That's all that anguish is. It's a big responsibility, but it's not crushing pessimistic despair. It's just uh having a good grasp of what the situation is.
2: I have my questions about it. But I think that we should go through what he actually says
3: before. Oh, really? (laughs) We should go through the humanism essay, and then we could go through the bad faith one. Yep, I agree. Let's say what existentialism means. Yeah. Because he does actually define it, thankfully.
0: Well, existence before essence.
3: Right. So what does that mean? He gives the example of a paper knife, which also shows up in No Exit, as something where essence actually precedes existence, right? which he takes to be that it has a kind of formula for production or he talks also of qualities. So it's got a preconceived concept or blueprint according to which it is produced and that's its essence.
0: It has an arete that it can live up to or not. It has its own excellence because of that, right? It's an Aristotelian thing.
3: Yeah, to say it has an essence is also to say it has a nature which it can fulfill – Worse or better, yeah. So I would say Aristeas and you know Aristotelian excellence. Yeah, something can be more or less itself, and it has to have a nature and essence to do that. Maybe nature is the wrong word. Nature is for animate biological things, but yeah.
1: Don't necessarily even talking about how well or poorly it fulfills that function. The point is, is that there's a need for something. Like we need something sharp to cut. Hence, we create or build or produce. This thing, which is sharp and can cut, and then it can fulfill that. In that way, the need or the function precedes the actual existence of the object. For Sartre, it
3: does, right? He gives so that's an interesting what he, that's what he take on when he says, essence. Yeah, yeah.
1: That's what he means when he says essence precedes existence. Am I wrong to take that as meaning that
2: the only things for which the essence precedes existence
3: are artifacts? Well, it's certainly not the case for human beings. I don't know... I think it would be for animals as well, because... Well, um, no, it's
0: just to say rocks, (laughs) or the river, or air. He doesn't address that here. He's just saying this in the context of trying to argue that the idea that there is a human nature is indelibly tied to the idea that there is a creator God.
3: Right. For Sartre, he thinks of man as a paper knife produced by God, and he's tying the idea of an essence to someone who has a concept and then goes about producing that thing, which is not really... The traditional philosophical view of essence so it's something we should point out he's giving his own very tendentious account of essence for his own reasons on the one hand
2: there's the question of the kind of
3: contingency and freedom involved in human beings which is where he
2: ends up at and then there's the well that's because existence precedes essence and human beings don't have a teleological end or whatever you want to say we're not like the paper knife that part of the analysis, I've been trying to sort of get my head around about, are there th- anything for which essence precedes existence? He gives the example of the paper knife. Well,
3: certainly artifacts, yeah. Yeah. Anything besides artifacts. But the broader argument, right, is against determinism. So you could look at any part of the world for which there's no transcendent subjectivity, which is the key thing for human beings, which is going to allow them to have their existence precede their essence. And we'll talk about that. But anything lacking that subjectivity, I think you could argue is in a essence precedes existence situation, which is to say it's run deterministically. So you can map out the way inanimate objects are going to behave based on their properties. And similarly, some people would want to say, well, human beings are just biological organisms and they're part of a world that we can understand naturalistically. And whether you want to analyze their character or you want to analyze the brain, you can say every action is just sort of an inevitable result of whether it's their particular character or whether it's human nature in general, some more general character, you can treat them as a deterministic system. So you could say this guy who committed a crime, well, he was a criminal or something was different about his brain. He was a psychopath. You can attribute to them all these kind of essential qualities that explain their behaviors. And that's what you do when you say essence precedes existence. By contrast, To say existence precedes essence is to say not that there's no such thing as character, obviously there is, but that subjectivity trumps that. It transcends it and it allows anyone to make a choice at any particular moment.
2: Am I right to say the core of the subjectivity is that the subject has a motion of itself? He'll describe
0: it as choice. A spontaneity. Spontaneity, Is what yes. he also calls it sometimes. Yep, that's which, fine. Yeah, that's weird that he calls choice and spontaneity the same thing. Right. When we think of choice as rational deliberative choice. Right. But he really thinks that all, what somebody else might say is your character that then determines your current action, he would say is sort of the result of a pre-deliberative choice, a spontaneous right. choice on your right. part that you're responsible for.
3: Yeah, or pre-reflective, yeah. He uses that word. And at the, at the end of the Bad Faith essay, he makes very clear that... By choice, he does not mean rational, deliberative choice.
2: I guess it just wasn't clear to me that it had to be pre-reflective. I understand that it could be spontaneous in the sense of not being deliberative, but I guess I took him to be taking the stronger stance that there just is a, well, I'm calling it emotion interior to, let's just take human beings, that is sort of the root of that subjectivity. That makes it so that they're not solely subject to the deterministic activity of the external world that you were talking about, Wes.
3: Yeah. I mean, it sounds almost like you're explaining Sartre via Aristotle there. <laughs> a motion internal to the...
0: Well, if motion is supposed to just describe a pattern, which is what the word motion actually does, then I think he would be okay with that. If it's supposed to describe a mechanism...
3: Or a tendency towards... yeah, Then
0: I don't think he'd be comfortable with that because right consciousness the cogito the starting point of all philosophy the ultimately free will the spontaneity that is supposed to be something that's really utterly transparent in a certain way that it has no being unto itself so really there's no further explanation that can be given it is a nothingness yeah you could make these ontological characterizations of it and say it is a nothingness it imposes nothingness on the things around you can talk about your experience but he just, I don't think, would be comfortable other than saying, it's you, it's your responsibility, it's your fault. You know, other than that, I doesn't want to say more about the mechanism.
2: What I mean when I say emotion in itself is I mean that it is a motion that arises not as a result of external action, is an internal activity.
0: I just don't know if he's going to be comfortable saying that there is internal versus external. That right. That's the point of right. consciousness being transparent, that it's not a container that then has to then, you know, see reflections of things in the outside world, this sort of Cartesian picture, but consciousness is just a pure openness to the outside. You know, if we're describing consciousness, we're describing the things that we're interacting with and only, and then, right, the self... Right, we're describing
3: the world essentially, and the consciousness is just a mist, a nothingness kind of mist. over. Yes,
0: and then so the self becomes a thing in the world.
3: But I think, Dylan, you're attempt to get it talking about consciousness is good because it highlights Sart's radicalness on this. Because he probably would be uncomfortable with trying to say, well, there's some kind of nature to consciousness that makes it do what it does. And, and by calling it a nothingness, it sounds really weird, but he's trying to get at the fact that consciousness is not just one other thing in the world, and we can't put consciousness or our thoughts or our feelings on the table in front of us and as a group poke at them and point to them and point them out to each other consciousness is a nothingness in that sense.
0: He avoids that term in the existentialism as a humanism essay. I notice it's not in there at all.
3: Right. And I think he talks a lot about subjectivity, right?
0: I also think it's useful as you were going, Dylan, to start questioning, you know, if he's going to contrast existence and essence to ask that question that you were asking, well, does anything besides artifacts have an essence? And though that's not completely germane to his focus in the existentialism is a humanism essay, which is all about personal responsibility. I do remember when I was just flipping through being nothingness, him saying something like, if you're talking about nature, there's no destruction, right? If, If an avalanche just happens in nature, it doesn't destroy things. All it does is redistribute matter from one place to another. It only becomes destruction when there's a human sort of evaluating it. It becomes destruction because this is a structure that I built or that I recognize as a coherent whole and it's being smashed apart. So there is no purposefulness in nature without human consciousness reflecting on it. Once you get rid of the doctrine of a creator God, really you get rid of essences altogether in nature.
2: And that seems to me to be overstating it a little bit, right? Is it really the case that there's no idea of destruction that's outside of human evaluation? I guess the only way you would say that is that the only way in which there are things at all is by human evaluation.
0: Yes.
1: The operative word is meaning. To say something destroys something else. That's taking a judgment stance. And he said there's no judgment in the world. There's no meaning in the world in that sense. Only human beings provide meaning. What there are just things that interact and that the idea that it moves from a better to a worse state or vice versa is something that only comes with human consciousness. Yeah, I guess I just deny that the
2: notion of destruction is a value judgment, necessarily. And that if you say that the world is full of things that interact, it seems to me you automatically prompt the question of, well, what does it mean for that thing to exist or not exist?
3: This is not the subject of today's reading.
2: I guess I'm brought back to the fact that both of these readings, though he points to something like existence precedes essence as a way of point to a kind of philosophical foundation for this point of view, it really doesn't rest on that. It really is a claim about radical human subjectivity. And even then, he's just taking that as the assumption or the claim and then working with that about responsibility and da-da-da-da. He's not delving into what the ontology or the metaphysics or the way in which things in the world are or are not that would be implied by a claim like, existence precedes essence
3: he does have a justification
2: it's justified based upon god right
3: (laughs) right exactly what he tries to say is that he's spelling out the consequences of atheism so this is on page three so that if there is no god then there is no one to be the man what man is to the paper knife and to provide him with an essence by building him according to a blueprint and then he has a really this is a really useful quote this is why i've brought us back to this on page three so what do we mean by saying that existence precedes essence We mean that man, first of all, exists, encounters himself, surges up in the world, and defines himself afterwards. So if man, as an existentialist, sees him as not definable, it's because to begin with, he is nothing. He makes himself, and so on and so forth. And then you get all this, before the projection of the self, nothing exists. So the projection being what we will, essentially, what our projects are. Toward the
0: end of the essay, I think he gives his alternative, that this theistic point of view, you could say, is the father of natural science. It is the father of viewing things that there is some God's eye view and a value-free description you could give to things and all that kind of stuff. And independent objects, and they could have teleologies and the whole Aristotelian framework. The thing he opposes to that is to start with the Cartesian cogito. Our point of departure is right. indeed the subjectivity of the individual for strictly philosophic reasons. At the point of departure, there cannot be any other truth than this. I think, therefore I am, which is the absolute truth of consciousness as it attains to itself. Every theory which begins with man outside of the moment of self attainment is a theory which thereby suppresses the truth. For outside of the Cartesian cogito, all objects are no more than probable, and any doctrine of probabilities which is not attached to a truth will crumble into nothing. This is an, another way of stating. Really, the only substantive point I think we got out of the Merleau-Ponty episode that we did right after we talked about Sartre last time, which is that the talk of natural science, including talk of human beings being caused to do something, saying that your brain makes you do things, that is all an abstraction from actual experience. So if we're going to have a philosophy of action, we don't look to this derived natural science secondary thing. We're going to have a philosophy of action, and, and with that in ethics, we look at the immediate, unabstracted, concrete experience, and that is one where we experience ourselves as absolutely free, as not having an essence, blah, blah, blah.
3: Right. And later on on the same page, right, he talks about the absolute truth of one's subjectivity. Basically, he's just reprising the Cartesian cogito, which is to say, whatever... The truth of our perceptions and beliefs, whether they correspond to an outside world and so on and so forth, you bracket that out. That doesn't matter because what you do know with absolute certainty is that you're having those experiences or those beliefs, the contents of consciousness, we have this immediate certain access to. And that has to be our starting point. He's taking an unabashed Cartesian line on this. Except for the presence unto others, yes. Well, he gets to that right. He brings in some Hegel and Kant as well. He's got a whole soup here of (laughs) selective uh, borrowings. So that subjectivity is the transcendent thing. And we actually get a quote here, which also relates back to our talk of inanimate objects. He goes into the dignity of man argument. His theory is the only one which will lend itself to the dignity of man. He says, all kinds of, this is on the same page you were reading, Mark 11, all kinds of materialism lead one to treat every man, including oneself as an object That is, as a set of predetermined reactions in no way different from the patterns of qualities and phenomena which constitute a table or a chair or a stone. But by contrast, this transcendent subjectivity, right, is because it's not a material thing in the world, can't be treated as just this deterministic phenomena which is going to unfold according to these rules. And so it's subjectivity where you get this radical kind of freedom that he's espousing.
0: Yes, which is why he's going to refer to these problems like bad faith, and the state of anxiety and despair that these are all, these are not psychological problems because psychology implies, you know, the science, this third person description, but that's all later. That's an abstraction. When you're talking in the language of this philosophy of action that is fundamental, that it comes out of the Cartesian cogito, then you're talking about really metaphysical problems that you're having a, an existential crisis, that there's something more fundamental to it than that. So since we're talking about this metaphysical structure, should we just sketch what bad faith is within that? Or do you want to
3: talk about the... Let's finish this paper before we get to the bad faith. He does bring up bad faith at the end of the paper.
0: Yeah, I just, I think it's a useful concept even for examining the practical examples that are in here. Okay. You guys want to do it?
2: Well, in the existentialism, of humanism, he brings up bad faith towards the end. He's talking about how we can judge things and whether or not, you know, everything's relative and stuff like that. He says, "We choose in the presence of others, and we choose ourselves in the presence of others. First, we may judge, and this may be a logical rather than a value judgment, that certain choices are based on error and others on truth. We may also judge a man when we assert that he' is acting in bad faith. If we define man's situation as one of free choice, in which he has no recourse to excuses or outside aid then any man who takes refuge behind his passions, any man who fabricates some deterministic theory, is operating in bad faith. One might object by saying, but why shouldn't he choose bad faith? My answer is that I do not pass moral judgment against him, but I call his bad faith an error. Here we cannot avoid making a judgment of truth. Bad faith is obviously a lie because it is a dissimulation of man's full freedom of commitment. And so in this essay, it's part of his articulation of how we have judgments and why we can make judgments and why we can call somebody a liar or say somebody's wrong. And it's in part qualifying the radical subjectivity of our experience.
3: Yeah. So we deceive ourselves into thinking that we don't have choices or that we're not free by ignoring this transcendent subjective side of ourselves and treating ourselves as if we're just determined things. And we can go the other way as well in the bad faith section in being in nothingness. We get a whole account of the different ways you can sort of go between viewing oneself from the perspective of a transcendent subject or an actual physical being in the world with character and tendencies. And it's by jumping between those two different points of view that you can deceive yourself and be in bad faith.
2: One question I had about trying to articulate this issue of bad faith is... When he talks about us always having choices, on the one hand, he's contrasting that with the notion of determinism, that we have no choice. And he's saying, look, you always have choices. Mm -hmm. And one initial reaction is that, well, okay, yeah, maybe strictly speaking, we have choices, but you're forgetting that maybe all those choices are bad choices (laughs) or undesirable or any number of other things. And that the question of bad faith seems to me to be complicated by that. When someone says, well, I don't have any choice, yes, of course, it might be that they're actually lying to themselves and that they do have a choice that they are shirking from, that they ought to just be stronger with respect to or are either being weak or they're lying to themselves. And we can talk about that difference. He wouldn't characterize it as weakness. He would characterize it as being in bad faith. And if we had good faith, then we would do the right thing, kind of almost like a platonic thing. But it seems perfectly conceivable that in the realm of choices, they're just not ones that you feel like are choice-worthy. So, in that way, you feel like there are no choices and that it's not a question of having no choices technically, it's that there's nothing that feels choice-worthy. And that distinction, he doesn't seem to even consider. It seems to be a, a little whiny to say, well, look, you always have choices. It, right. You know, you, you know, just because you're drowning in the middle of the ocean, you could decide to drown yourself. You could decide to try to tread
3: water forever. I, do you want to get into these criticisms now or do we want to plow through the material first?
0: It's good to just throw this out as a, a way of trying to focus on what he's trying to do here. Why yes. is he introducing the concept of bad faith in the first place? Yes. And that's made explicit in the Existentialism is a Humanism essay where he's trying to say, even though we don't have moral rules in the way that Christians do – I can still be judgmental about you, legitimately. So the the substitution for old-fashioned, you know, I consult the moral rules, you're doing the wrong thing, so I call you out on it, is that I can accuse you of a logical error. I can accuse you of contradicting yourself, which I think is basically the move that everybody that is not a moral realist has to take to say that there's something that you have in your nature. Some other people might say that you have certain desires that, what you're doing now contradicts those desires. He's not going to say that. He's going to, again, say, because desire, that almost sounds like it's psychologically. He wants to say this is a ontological. This is fundamental to the structure of our being that we can be in this bad faith. And as you read farther in the bad faith, it looks like it's it's really hard to avoid bad faith right. because of this fundamental ambiguity between am I a transcendent subject where I always have a choice, but I have facticity. I'm rooted in the world. I There were past actions that I took that built up something that I could call my character. And the fact that we're constantly treading a line between those, this is, again, to anticipate the end of his story. To me, it looked like there wasn't any particular right answer. But his PR machine is crossing out such difficulties in the existentialism is a humanism essay. And he just wants to say, we don't need old-fashioned moral judgments because we have this new way of doing it.
3: Right. But the new way of doing it is just Kant. (laughs) Which he acknowledges and then says, but Kant's universal principles are too abstract to help us with action. So when I say it's just Kant, he's just saying that this is at the end of the humanism essay. Mark, as you just pointed out, there's no a priori values that guide us. Mm -hmm. So the bad faith is our moral criterion. But to get there, we have to say someone is in a contradiction. And here's a quote. Freedom in respect of concrete circumstances can have no other end and aim but itself. And when once a man has seen that values depend on himself, in that state of forsakenness, he can only will one thing, and that is freedom as the foundation of all values. Now, we remember from Kant that Kant's very clever idea driving morality from nothing whatsoever, certainly not from God, right, is to say that, well, let's look at the conditions for the possibility of morality, and that's willing. we got to have free will. Well, for will to be free, it can't be contradictory, So the law of non-contradiction, we say, okay, well, whatever is moral is just what we can will universally, because will also has to be universal or else it doesn't make sense, in such a way that it doesn't undermine itself, that it doesn't undermine the very idea of having a will, and that's morality. And you're getting something very similar here, I think, in Sartre.
0: Something that also sounds like a version of the categorical imperative is just a few paragraphs into the essay when he introduces the concept of anguish. You know, that this is one of those existentialist buzzwords that had been kicked around. And he says, what that means is, when a man commits himself to anything, fully realizing that he's not only choosing what he will be, but is thereby at the same time a legislator deciding for the whole of mankind. In such a moment, a man cannot escape from the sense of complete and profound responsibility." So it's not just that we are completely free, it's that we are completely responsible. So that sounds very much like Kant, but he thinks that the difference between him then and Kant is that Kant thinks that this calculation gives you a right answer for how to act. Whereas all it does for Sartre is say, look, there is no right answer that you can appeal to. Nothing sort of outside your own thinking about things. But yet you have this huge responsibility regardless. You know, in this way, it almost sounds more like Nietzsche's eternal recurrence. Whatever you do, you're sort of willing ad infinitum. (laughs) You're willing it big time. So think really carefully before you do something and do it with your whole being.
3: Right. So his example in this essay is the guy who has to choose between staying home and helping his mother who really needs his help or going to war the use of a Kantian maxim or religion or any other system isn't going to provide you with an answer. This is a moral dilemma for which there's no good solution with any moral system. And his doesn't provide you with a solution anyway. So the difference between here and Kant is that in this making of a choice, whether to go to war or to help your mother, for Kant, presumably, there would be some maxim that would help you decide. So in avoiding contradicting yourself, you would necessarily come out on one side or the other. But for Sartre, the avoidance of contradiction just means that you commit to it and you choose one or the other, and it's not going to help you choose which one. So his system is just as good as Kant's in that sense, as far as actually helping you to resolve moral dilemmas. It doesn't. But the idea is that each choice is equally good. And so even though there's
0: no pre-written, God-ordained or otherwise interpersonally objective and verifiable right way to act— Even though there's no set of moral rules that we can refer to, he still thinks it's not just a matter of sort of arbitrary choice. That just the fact that you have this weight on you, that if you're considering that, if you're being honest with yourself, you're clear about what the human situation of freedom and responsibility is, that you're not going to just make any old whimsical choice.
3: Well, also, you can be a coward. So, for instance, if he didn't go to war because he was a coward, that's a problem right? If he doesn't go to war because he's making a choice and he values taking care of his mother more than going to war, that's one thing. So you can't tell from what choice he made whether he's in bad faith.
0: But the stress on cowardliness, really advocating, you know, bravery in the old Greek style, you should not be afraid to fight. Why can't I just make it a self-conscious part of my values that I think fighting is, why the hell would I want to go there and fight? Of course, I'm going to run from that.
2: I mean, isn't it that the choice from Sarger's point of view is legitimate if it's done in good faith? And so that being cowardly and avoiding the fight because you're a coward would mean that you were in bad faith with respect to it?
3: Well, to make any decision where you say, I am X, and you characterize yourself in some way, therefore I'm not going to do this, is to be in bad faith. There's no I am a coward, I am brave, and therefore... To be in bad faith, right, you treat yourself as a determined thing. You treat yourself as this thing with properties, and your actions are going to flow from those properties, and so you get off the hook as far as responsibility with regards to those actions.
2: Okay, so this brings me to the way you guys were characterizing it. It sounded right to me, but it was confusing to me for Sartre, and it has been confusing with regarding Kant, is why willing has to be universal and why willing has to be consistent. And is that just because in order for it to be moral, that's a characteristic of morality? And so therefore, if I'm going to speak of something being moral, it's going to be consistent and universal? Or is it something separate from that?
3: The Kantian idea is that willing would cease to be willing if it weren't universal and consistent. So if you will something that undermines the grounds for the possibility of willing, will is just not the type of thing that would do that, right? It self-destructs in that sense. But these are two
0: different things, the consistency and the universality. The consistency, I understand,
3: like I really think that works
0: in terms of accusing somebody of something, that you're being inconsistent with yourself and that there's something sort of built in what it is to be a personality at all that requires some kind of integrity.
3: The universality is because what's willed must be necessary and you can't have anything that's necessary without that universality. And I don't understand it well enough to fully explain it, but that's the basic idea. Okay, so I'm willing to bracket that. But we should discuss it for Sartre, because I think for Sartre, when he tries to respond to these objections and he says, well, when you will, you will for all mankind, there's no justification of that.
2: Well, I had a question about that, but I, I wanted, because Mark just brought it up, the question of consistency making sense, I wanted him to explain it to me. Because the way you just described it, it seems to me to go against the way... Sartre characterizes the radical subjectivity of our choices. So, when I say, I need to have consistency because if I don't have consistency, then I kind of annihilate myself. But I thought that was the whole deal, that I don't have any self, period, to annihilate. If you don't have something to compare to, what does it even mean to be inconsistent?
0: Right. Well, the answer he gives in existentialism humanism is that while there's no consistent human nature, there's a consistent human condition. And the human condition is the one of freedom. And so that is the situation that we're all in. And so if you deny that, then you're being inconsistent with yourself. Because the best way I can see is why this is an inconsistency on your part, as opposed to just denying a fact, is that your freedom is not just a fact about you. It is you. You are the freedom. You are your
3: will is freedom. And so just to have a will at all. To say you're a human being is just to say you are the free thing.
2: Yeah, and so then I'm brought back to my earlier question about the nature of this freedom. Because he doesn't mean freedom in the sense that you can do absolutely anything. He's not being absurd and saying, well, of course you can fly or whatever. He makes a big deal about a kind of radical contingency of us. But yet we have, by definition, by our existence, a deep and abiding freedom. And it is yet a freedom under constraint. Is it just as simple as, well, there are other things that I could do because I'm a willing being. Is that what it means? That technical notion of choice making, regardless of whether those choices seem like real choices or, or not? Is that what that means?
3: One of the clues is in the, the end of the bad faith essay where he says, we're in bad faith in the same way as we sleep and dream, right? And yet it's a choice. So as we pointed out earlier on, it's a different conception of choice than the idea of rational deliberative choice.
2: That quote that you just read sounds very much like a quote about being and about essence. But we have existence preceding essence. And so there's this kind of tension where the claims that he's making about the nature of our freedom seem to sound a lot like claims about our essence, the kind of entity we are. And then appealing to that as a way to ground claims about what we can and can't do and make decisions and choices and all those kinds of things, and then at the same time say that it's utterly wide open. I'm trying to figure out what is the unnaive way he means it's utterly wide open.
0: In existentialism is humanism, I think the best answer he gives is when he talks about Descartes' quote, conquer yourself rather than the world. So this is when he's defining another one of these existentialism buzz terms, despair. The meaning of the expression is extremely simple. It means we limit ourselves to a reliance upon that which is within our wills or within the sum of the probabilities which render our action feasible. Whenever one wills anything, there are always elements of probability. If I'm coming upon a visit from a friend who may be coming by train or tram, I suppose that the train will arrive to the appointed time or that the tram will not be derailed. I remain in the realm of possibilities, but one does not rely upon any possibilities beyond those that are strictly concerned in one's action. Beyond the point at which the possibilities under consideration cease to affect my action, I have to disinterest myself.
3: In other words, don't worry about what you can't control.
0: <laughs> right. Well, I mean, it's, it sounds like that little chestnut here. But then when I was trying to understand freedom, flipping through more of being in nothingness, and you know, later in the book, there's a whole being and doing freedom section. And so I saw this same quote from Descartes. When Descartes said, conquer yourself rather than the world, what he meant was at bottom the same, that we should act without hope. So That's the, the end of this Paragraph that I was just reading from, Mm -hmm. from existentialism and humanism. Uh, The same thing shows up in being in nothingness much later in the book where he talks about freedom and facticity, the situation. And he just, I feel like I need to bring this up just because this is exactly the issue you put forward, Dylan, you know, that, you know, if you found yourself drowning in the sea, like what kind of great choices really are there? And the way he says it is the coefficient of adversity in things cannot be an argument against our freedom, for it is by us. By the preliminary positing of an end, that this coefficient of adversity arises. So in other words, the only reason we think that things are so hard on you right now is because you yourself have taken up certain commitments. You've adopted certain purposes, which then these things that are happening are obstacles toward. So the way this was explained to me in grad school was pretty much that you have control over yourself. You can control your attitude in regard to things. So the freedom involved in I'm drowning what do I do? Well, I could keep trying to tread water, you know, those options you gave. It's not that those options are really, it's more, think of sort of what the Taoist or the Buddhist would respond here. Like, well, you could just put your mind at peace and shift your goals and say, this is the way (laughs) that things are now. And I'm going to take my
3: fate with some peace and dignity and (laughs) uh, have control over yourself that way. It sounds like the quietism to which he objects. But I think, actually, you know what's funny? I just read an article today about a guy who was stranded at sea.
2: (laughs) Yeah, it was on the New York Times. He did. Yeah,
3: did you read that? So he did tons tons of things. He took off his boots, which turned out to be buoyant, and he was able to float on his boots. And then he found his way to some buoys and cut one and then floated over to another buoy. He basically did all kinds of stuff. But I I don't think the point is that you should expect that if you're stranded at sea, you have a lot of options that you're going to fulfill your project of becoming president or something like that. But also, I think you guys are right. We don't have a lot of information about what freedom means here, because the classical way to spell out some sense of free will that is not just uh, naive is to talk about rational deliberation, right? That's a path to freedom. Mm -hmm. And that's one he explicitly rejects. But it could be that freedom, though, involves not deceiving yourself, not being in bad faith. And that's just uh, the limited sense in which he's talking about freedom, which is sort of a variation on the rational deliberation thing, right? Because, you know, rational deliberation, we're supposed to use all the information and our reasoning powers to make a decision. In this case, our requirement is just that we maintain our good faith, that we don't deceive ourselves. So I think once we start talking more about bad faith and good faith, we'll have a better idea of what freedom might mean.
1: So the copy of being and nothingness that i have doesn't have the chapter on bad faith in it it's available online no no i read oh, okay. it online afterwards oh, okay. but why it's not in this edition i have no idea but i got confused and i ended up reading part two chapter one which is immediate structures of the for itself presence of self facticity of the four itself and so on it's very interesting maybe someday we'll get around to reading that Sartre's idea of what freedom is, Wes, it's explained through this very formal idea he has about what pre-reflective and reflective consciousness are. You know, that there's pre-reflective consciousness, which is what he calls the in itself, which is just your facticity or the facticity of your being in the world, as it were. And then when you have reflective consciousness about that in itself, then there's for itself which is a different sort of thing. And he has a very complicated structure that he explains about how reflective consciousness requires the in itself, but the in itself is not a foundation for it. He has this idea about consciousness being that it is what it is not. And what he means by that is take, for example, the past, the reflective consciousness looks at the past and the past is what is not. It doesn't exist anymore. It's not present. But it's still constitutive of what consciousness is. And so, when he says that consciousness is what it is not, he means that, in part, that the past, what is not, is part of what consciousness is. And freedom is his way of applying that same concept to the future. So, consciousness is what it is not, With respect to the future, because there are all these possibilities and they're not causally related to the in itself, the present pre-reflective consciousness that's the basis for reflective consciousness. Yeah. So it's just to
3: say we can will something. We have all these future possibilities that we can project to, which is to say will.
1: Yes. But for him, there's no causal relationship. Freedom is somehow freedom from being causally determined. Or right. I think you mentioned this early on, determinism in a kind of strict sense.
3: Yeah. And future possibilities are causally antecedent, right, to our behavior. We reach for a possibility. It's not as if we're being pushed by some antecedent cause, but we're reaching for it.
1: Yeah, exactly. And for him, it's important to note this freedom is almost only- guaranteed by the ontological structure of consciousness it's not a psychological fact it's not even determinism in the kind of strict causal fact the structure of consciousness is to somehow be both what it is and what it is not and that that's very important to him
3: just the fact that you have subjectivity and you can become aware of some possibility and then go for that possibility One can think of that as guaranteeing a kind of freedom.
1: Almost that that's what subjectivity is. Not that you can be aware of a possibility, but that subjectivity is pointed towards what it is not. And it's constituted by that.
0: And to me, this all is just smashed together with the talk about nothingness and consciousness is a nothingness that when we perceive something, we don't just perceive that there is the big table in front of me. We perceive possibilities. We think of in terms of the past and the future. We think in terms not of just of what's there, but what's not there. And that, again, this is not just something that's going on in your head. These are properties of experience itself. And that is, again, the primary field from which all science and stuff are later abstractions. This is the realm that we are talking about. So in that sense, consciousness is a nothingness. It projects nothingness. It sees nothingness. It, it is nothingness.
2: Can you contrast that with ambiguity? What's the distinction that he's making between it being a nothingness as opposed to a multifarious plurality, a deep ambiguity?
0: Right. I think those are the same thing. Because remember, when we were talking about this in our, our last podcast on Sartre about phenomenology and Husserl before him, we talked about this really solely in terms of every object that we encounter, including the object that is our self that's built over time, this public object, it presents itself as transcendent, as having sides that I don't see. And so it seems like that is like what you're saying that, you know, I just see one side of it. I don't know even what the other sides are. I know that there are other sides. Maybe it's mostly flat and I would find that it's not a very three-dimensional object at all. So it, it presents itself as an ambiguity in this way. So a transcendence is an ambiguity, just the way he characterizes it, which you could just argue with this characterization is it's also a nothingness that I see. He doesn't see a difference between those.
3: No, I think it's just consciousness. That's no. the nothingness, not the transcendent objects.
0: Isn't it the fact that it's our interaction with those objects that is creating the transcendence? I know we're going back to this sort of bigger metaphysical picture that we can't really handle. No, no, no.
1: So we have to tie this back to transcendence is transcendence of the gap between is and is not, whether that's future or past or possibility versus actuality, what have you. Mm -hmm. And consciousness transcends the is to the is not. And the gap between is and is not is the nothing. Nothingness is that gap. Mm,
3: Okay. To say consciousness transcends the is, is just to say that the fact that you have subjectivity, you have these subjective experiences and you can will and do all these things, transcends your nature as a physical being in the world with a brain subject to deterministic scientific laws and so on and so forth.
1: Mm -hmm. To go back to that avalanche thing, Dylan, that's why he's saying that the concept of destruction, that when things... Interact with each other. They simply interact. There's no attribution of description or meaning that's applied to interaction of physical things.
2: Should I read nothingness as no thingness?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's a playful word.
3: Hmm. Yeah. I mean, what is he really means that there's an ontological category nothingness? There's no being at all to it? He has whole chapters of the book on this that
0: we didn't read, and I don't think we're going to get the right answer here. Right.
2: I understand that. But that gap, when you call it a nothingness, it's not at all clear to me what that even means. Just even the term a nothingness.
3: <laughs> it's just not. I think for our purposes, it's uh, that consciousness is not a thing in the world is a pretty helpful way to think about it. Okay.
2: Am I going too far if I want to understand consciousness as an activity, but not a thing in the world? Or from Sartre's point of view, am I going way too far? Well,
3: I, yeah, this I don't know. I mean, because we didn't read this for our, we can't answer these questions.
2: <laughs> Bring it back to human action. Well, I guess, I guess what I had in mind was, was bad faith because when I first was trying to understand it is I thought of it as just lying to myself. And so I was thinking of it as, well, when I have bad faith, I am misunderstanding myself. But the way we've been talking about it is it's more of a negative definition of that I am in bad faith if I'm thinking that I am constrained at all. I'm denying my freedom. And that's a different way to understand. That's not lying to yourself, except in only one way. You have only one lie. That is the mm-hmm. lie of that you have no choices.
3: Right. It is one particular kind of self-deception. That's right.
2: Yes. And, and so that's different than what I would normally think of as lying to myself about something about even my current transitory state of being or my own state of affairs.
3: Right. It's not lying to yourself in general. It's a particular kind of self-deception.
0: Lying to yourself about your own freedom is one way of doing it. It's the easiest way to understand. So if you say, I couldn't help it. I'm just a coward. That's why I ran away. Then that is treating yourself as an object. The way that's more difficult to understand is not when you're denying your own freedom, but you're really denying your own responsibility. Or your transcendence, right? Yeah, you can deny either
3: horn. Yeah.
0: Right. So the responsibility, I guess, the way he talks about an existential is is a humanism is what I'm trying to connect to the way he talks about consistency. I don't even know if he uses that word, but in being in nothingness. He gives this example in Being in Nothingness about two guys that are arguing about whether one of them is a homosexual.
2: A pederast. Was that you, you were oh, used yeah. Like where he glosses homosexual with pederast? I didn't understand that at
3: all. Is that an accident of translation? Or yeah, I was wondering about that. Too. I
2: thought he said both
0: in here.
3: He uses them yeah. interchangeably.
2: Yes. Which I found <laughs> totally bizarre, but. Yeah. So let's
0: just, for, it was a while ago. It was the 40s. Okay. <laughs> he was a liberal guy. Give, <laughs> give him that. But there's still no peace. Because
1: he's willing to defend the pederast. <laughs> I think you said it in your summary, Mark. You just said somebody who engages in a lot of homosexual acts but denies they're homosexual. Yes. Okay. That's that simple.
0: Exactly. So his friend is trying to get him to admit that he's a homosexual. And he's not denying his own freedom and saying, I'm not a homosexual, because it seems like if he says he's a homosexual, then he that's when he's like nailing himself down. But if he says, oh, I'm ever free, who knows what I'll do tomorrow? Then he's okay with the freedom horn of the dilemma, but it's the responsibility horn, which I, again, am interpreting as consistency. That if you're doing something repeatedly and you're denying that of yourself and you're saying, oh, no, I'm just the transcendent subject, then you're denying things about your facticity, about your history, about your past. What's weird in this example, just to give the end of it, is while he's saying that the guy who's denying his homosexuality is in bad faith, his friend who's trying to get him to admit it is also in bad faith for the opposite
3: reason. Yeah, the advocate of sincerity is in bad faith. Yes. Should we go through the whole bad faith piece argument?
0: Go ahead. Fill in the gap. I thought we had already gotten there.
3: All right. I'll try and give my little summary. Bad faith is a kind of self-deception, but unlike the case of actual deception, where you have two human beings and... One of them is a liar and knows that he's a liar, and the other one doesn't, right? In the case of bad faith, you have to be both the liar and the deceived at the same time, which creates a kind of ontological problem. So what he wants to claim, though, is that we must know we're in bad faith pre-reflectively. I must both know and not know is going to sort of be the outcome of this. So in doing this, he gives this critique of Freud, right? Because it would be an easy way and the right way, by the way, of explaining that faith would be to talk about the unconscious and the people deceive themselves. So he gives an account of Freud where you have the conscious, which he identifies with the ego and the unconscious, which he identifies with the id. By the way, he's wrong to identify those things. So there's a sensor that prevents forbidden impulses from coming to consciousness. And so you get this dual subject, the unconscious part of the person and then the conscious part. And so he asked the question, well, where do you place this censorship faculty? And by the way, the reason why that, you know, dividing the subject up into two is so convenient in the Freudian way is that because you just get the same structures that you would if you had two people and one was a liar and one wasn't a liar. So it's a very convenient way of solving this ontological problem of being both the, the deceiver and the deceived. Ultimately, he's going to claim that you can't place this faculty of censorship in the unconscious because the unconscious impulses are actually striving to become conscious. And then he's going to say that you can't place the faculty of censorship in consciousness because the censor must know what it's suppressing and how to do that. And so then we'd know what it is we're not conscious of. So that wouldn't work. And so this he sees as sort of deflating Freud's theory. Unfortunately, the id isn't just the unconscious, and the ego isn't just conscious. The unconscious, for Freud, it's the id, and then large portions of the ego and the superego are unconscious. And the censoring faculty is part of the preconscious, which is part of the ego. It's an ego function. And it can be that because large parts of the ego are in fact unconscious. So in the same way that you're unconscious when you have a lot of know-how when you play tennis and it's unconscious, you can have a sensor who knows how to suppress forbidden impulses and do it unconsciously and have it be part of the ego. I find it weird that Sartre would write about this because Freud spelled it out in great detail and there's tons of psychoanalytic literature on this very topic, but he's sort of giving this kind of schoolboy rendition of Freud. But let's take his criticisms for granted and say, okay, if we get rid of this Freudian model of a dual subject and we say that we have to have a unified consciousness that both somehow knows and doesn't know at the same time, right, in order to deceive itself. He calls it a double activity of repulsion and attraction but ultimately, it's a unity. So we get this weird ontology to consciousness in order to make bad faith work. Where, So for instance, he gives an example of women who are made frigid because they've been unfaithful, right? So they've been unfaithful, so they're no longer sexually responsive to their husbands. And he wants to talk about this in terms of nothing's happening unconsciously, which of course is ridiculous. (laughs) But That's his claim. But rather she's consciously distracting herself in order to prove to herself that she's frigid. She's engaging in a kind of willful self-deception and self-distraction. And so that's the alternate theory. Right. He
0: claims that in therapeutic situations that you always find out when you dig far enough, the person actually was aware of this, that they're just dicking around with you and that it's not a a separate unconscious entity that's doing the acting. That's just a claim he makes. Well,
3: they're aware and they're not aware. There's a moment of, again, he makes some very strange claims about the double activity of the knowing and not knowing at the same time. Right. And it's hard to know how to read that exactly. Do you think he gives
0: a coherent picture, a coherent alternative to Freud's dual subject idea?
3: It's an interesting possibility, but I don't understand it well enough to know how it would work. In the end, I don't think it matters that much, actually.
0: <laughs> no, no. and I was just going to
3: bypass right. Sorry. the whole
0: thing other than to say that he, like many people of his time who were skeptical of Freud's notion of the unconscious, just thought that it was inconceivable that, come on, how could thinking be unconscious? Thinking is by definition conscious. I, I don't understand. And Actually, I was a little sympathetic to it in the same kind of frustration that we were having during our last discussion of this with Lacan. Where is agency going on? Is the unconscious an agent? Is there an agent that's shifting things from the conscious to the unconscious? His solution to all that is just to say, again, no, agency is a primary fact of conscious experience, of experience itself. And so that somebody who's taking a scientific tack like Freud and talking about causality among elements of the psyche is just, again, violating Sartre's basic phenomenological instruction, you know, about how to do philosophy of what the starting point of philosophy is and thereby how we would analyze something like this at all. It's unclear to me what Sartre would say about other forms of mental illness. Like, is really everything is going to be a matter of you're consciously dicking with yourself?
3: Yeah, and talk to the schizophrenic (laughs) about choices. And the idea of choice isn't actually helpful. People are driven by their characters, and you see it every day. And it doesn't help them to say, oh, I'm just going to make choices. I'm going to be a Sartrean or an Ayn Randian, and I'm going to will myself out of it. They need therapy. They need therapeutic interactions with other human beings before they are going to change substantially. And that's one area where I fundamentally disagree with
1: Sartre. Were we criticizing Sartre's notion of bad faith?
3: Yeah. You know, I wanted to wait to voice my criticisms at the very end, actually, but I couldn't help myself with the specific Freud. Thing. I mean, in the case of Freud, he's just specifically wrong about because he didn't read Freud. And it's very obvious from reading what he has to say. No one who read Freud would ever claim that the it is identifiable with the unconscious and the ego with the conscious. It's Psychoanalysis 101. People can Google structural diagram and they'll see a whole diagram which outlines the negative of that fact. And it's one of the first things you learn about because Freud essentially had two theories and then melded them. They're different theories of the psyche, but they work together in a very specific way. So that's one criticism. But the other criticism is I am bothered by the idea, his idea of freedom and having these choices. I think I'm the coward. I'm the excuse maker. So, okay, so that I'm going to be the advocate on that side (laughs) of things. And say that if people really do want to change, and he does explicitly talk about change in this, then a therapeutic approach is going to be far better than whatever it is that Sartre is advocating about simply willing oneself into making certain choices.
1: Hmm. I'm not sure that I picked up on that. You know, in terms of bad faith, after listening to Mark's summary and after reading the section on bad faith, that's not the thing that came to the fore. Bad faith
3: is an important idea. People do deceive themselves. So I have a disagreement about the ontology of consciousness, right? I think Freud had a better account of that. And then I have a disagreement about the moral upshot of that. But the actual concept of bad faith, I think, is important. It's a real thing. And I think these examples he gives are awesome. The woman on her date and then the waiter in the cafe.
0: So you could accept that bad faith exists and is morally important. You could still be a Freudian and believe in Freud bad faith. Freud is all faith. about
3: bad faith, of course. People are deceiving themselves, and they don't know themselves very well. The whole point of psychoanalysis is to know thyself. It's a variation on the philosophical self-examination, but it's premised on a therapeutic as opposed to a simply rational approach.
0: One element I feel we need to throw back in here is the intersubjective element. That, again, he says, yes, my starting point is... Descartes cogito but i disagree with that
3: in <laughs> this is just him jerry-rigging his theory <laughs> in a really pathetic way he's plastering on a little hegel onto Descartes well let
0: me just read this the sentence from Extensionalism into humanism contrary to the philosophy of Descartes contrary to that of Kant when we say i think we are attaining to ourselves in the presence of the other and we are just as certain of the other as we are of ourselves. Thus, the man who discovers himself directly in the cogito also discovers all the others and discovers them as a condition of his own existence, right? So we've yeah. you know, discussed where that comes from in terms of Hegel about, you know, how the self is a public thing and we don't have privileged access to ourselves.
3: But Sartre does think we have privileged access to ourselves. And The absolute certainty of subjectivity, I think, is a direct quote.
0: But we are also absolutely certain of the other. And just as we are absolutely certain of our own freedom, we're also absolutely certain of the other's freedom. Right. And by the end of the essay, he says that we're then, like you were describing that this is a Kantian move, that ethics becomes respecting the freedom of the mm-hmm. other and promoting that. That's also certain that we're on a similar stance with regard to other people that we are to ourselves. Yeah. We're in a similar epistemic position.
3: He's trying to fend off the typical criticisms that he was receiving about, well, you're not acknowledging the fact that an ontological condition of consciousness is the consciousness of the other. And so he just wants to pull that back into his theory.
0: If you believe that the other is constitutive of the self, that those, those go together, that we need other people in the no exit play, a very, very big part of it was being able to see yourself through other people's eyes. And that's part of what defines you that other people could be essential for working through your bad faith. He's not just saying you have to just command yourself to be in good faith. You just have to be properly self-reflective because part of what that means then is to just like in the the homosexual case that, you know, however you feel about it, like, oh, this is what I choose to be today. You know, I have a similar thing with, you know, I'm really disciplined about my diet, except during the times when I'm eating, you know? So so this view that I might have of myself, or I think that I'm another uh, example of Sartre's, That I'm so brave, oh, but except when I actually am confronted and I need to be brave then, but still I'm brave like 99% of the time, you know, when I'm not being chased by anybody. So getting the view of another person then, even just imaginatively seeing like, well, how would other people look objectively at what I'm doing? that's what you do to get over bad faith
3: no in that example he's criticizing the critic right and he calls it a master slave dynamic lacan of course was kind of trying to unify hegel and freud in a certain sense and so it gets us back to some of that which is that the other is actually a huge problem for our authenticity because the desire of the other becomes our desire and then we have to untangle all that so i think the example of the waiter in the cafe is a good one there right give us the example He talks about a waiter in a cafe who's sort of playing the role of being waiter, being good at his job in an affected or self-conscious way. And the whole point is that there's an implied self-conception of, okay, yeah, this is who I am. This is my essence. This is my character, or this is my type, and I'm fulfilling that type. But of course, there is no such type for human being. Human beings transcend their in itself. He can form reflective judgments about his condition. So he's trying to realize himself as the, the being in itself of a cafe waiter, but there is no such thing. And it kind of relieves him of his choice making function, right? It becomes an excuse for not doing something else or it could. Not every waiter, of course, is in bad faith, but this is the particular example. So in this sense, you know, when we take a typology or character, it's part of it is what other people expect of us. And he talks about that in this example people expect you to fill these certain roles, whether it's the waiter or the grocer, and they want to think of you as just that, right? And that's one of the first things we ask people when we meet them. And, you know, we ask them what they do for a living. We're trying to give them this typology by which we can understand their nature, let's say. When for Sartre, that kind of understanding of people is in bad faith.
2: Which side is in bad faith in that?
3: In this case, the examples of a waiter in bad faith.
2: The waiter's in bad faith because he thinks that he is a waiter rather than thinking that a waiter is a role that he has or something like that.
3: Exactly. He thinks of it as an essence. He relegates all his actions to that particular type as opposed to simply acting spontaneously, right? So if I weren't a waiter trying to fulfill my type, I would behave differently. I might not be doing all the waiterly things, let's say. Holding my arm in a certain way and having the the white cloth draped over it perfectly I might not be enacting that role with such vigor. I might, of course, and I might just be playing at it. I might know I'm playing at it, but that would be different.
0: I don't know that it's different. So there's a quote in the other essay, in Existentialism is a Humanism, which says, a sentiment which is play-acting and one which is vital are two things that are hardly distinguishable from one another. And he uses that in the example of the guy who's he's trying to decide whether to go off to war or not, or should he stay home and take care of his mother? You know, that there are sort of reasons for doing each. And he could say, oh, well, I stayed home to take care of my mother because I have this civic responsibility because I care for my mother. But he doesn't know for sure what his motives were, that we never know for sure that a sentiment, again, which is ploy acting and one which is real are basically the same. And so that's kind of the problem with the waiter here is that in one sense, he's putting on the role of a waiter very self-consciously. If he was just doing his job, you know, taking the orders and walking back, then as you said, Wes, he wouldn't be like all cliche waiterly about it. (laughs) He's doing it like he's in a play, playing at being a waiter. This is a guy with a
3: maximum number of pieces of flair that you can have. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) He's not a space And this is,
0: I could see why Sartre would find that irritating. But this also reminded me of when Nietzsche talked about the same thing, of when people get to the point where they're play acting, this was in our gay science episode just recently, when people get to the point where they don't identify with their jobs anymore, where they're play acting, then that's actually when they sort of get creative and awesome about
3: it so that this guy is taking waiterdom
0: to its height, and he's going to get the biggest
3: damn tip. Let me read what Sartre actually has to say, because I I don't think I've done a good job. So let us consider this waiter in the cafe. His movement is quick and forward, a little too precise, a little too rapid. He comes toward the patrons with a step a little too quick. He bends forward a little too eagerly. His voice, his eyes express an interest a little too solicitous for the order of the customer. So he's creeping you out, maybe. Finally, there he returns, <laughs> trying to imitate in his walk the inflexible stiffness of some kind of automaton while carrying his tray with the recklessness of a tightrope walker by putting it in a perpetually unstable, perpetually broken equilibrium, which he perpetually reestablishes by a light movement of the arm and hand. Wow, yeah, a different sort of patron might admire all this, but sorry is, I guess, grumpy about it. All of his behavior seems to us a game.
0: Anybody that listened to our Berkson on Humor episode, this should sound extremely familiar, this acting mechanically right. in this way. Berkson was a primary influence on Sartre here. So why is this not just funny?
3: (laughs) So let me me finish, yeah. He he applies himself to chaining his movements as if they were mechanisms, the one regulating the other, his gestures and even his voice seeming to be mechanisms. He gives himself the quickness and pitiless rapidity of things, or gives himself, yeah. he is playing, he's amusing himself, but what is he playing? We need not watch long before we can explain it. He is playing at being a waiter in a cafe. It's wholly a condition of ceremony. The public demands of them that they realize it is a ceremony. There is the dance of the grocer, of the tailor, and so on. There are indeed many precautions to imprison a man in what he is, as if we lived in perpetual fear that he might escape from it, that he might break away and suddenly elude his condition. Ultimately, the waiter in the cafe cannot be immediately a cafe waiter in the sense that this inkwell is an inkwell. In other words, there's no essence. Human beings aren't determined by their waiter essence in the way that an inkwell is determined by its essence because he can form reflective concepts concerning his condition. And those are transcendent, or they refer to the transcendent. So the final bit is what I attempt to realize as a being in the waiter of the cafe waiter, as if it were not just in my power to confer their value and their urgency upon my duties and the rights of my position, as if it were not my free choice to get up each morning. So you say to yourself, I'm a waiter, this is what I do. It's no longer a choice. And I think that's the objection where people slide into this kind of sedimented position where they see themselves as having a certain character or a certain position in society or the world, and then they act out of that.
0: Yes. I mean, as soon as you say he's play acting at being a waiter, that makes me think that he is self-reflective about it, that he's sort of being an, an ironist in the way that maybe Nietzsche would have approved. But the fact that he does this all the time, day after day, like that, again, if... If you're play acting that hard, then that's indistinguishable from actually claiming yourself to be that thing. So even if through play acting, you're in a sense claiming yourself not to be that thing. I'm the play actor. I'm not actually the waiter. I'm the actor at being the waiter. If you do that so much, then you're in fact, even through this attempted act of irony, you're just affirming that you are the waiter. You're in bad faith.
3: Well, I think the idea is that ultimately that we abdicate responsibility for our actions, right? By attributing them to some type to inhabit that role in that way, as opposed to saying, this is my choice to get up at this time in the morning. Could I be something else? Yeah, there's, all, there's a million other possibilities. I choose this. I choose to be a waiter. So he's just
0: basing this all on just how creepy this particular waiter <laughs> seems to him that he doesn't really know. He thinks he could tell in the same way that we said that, you know, yourself is sort of public. You can't really have this whole inner life that is totally secret to everybody. Like if you're really thinking about stuff and wondering and dreaming, people are going to be able to tell just by looking at you. So that he thinks himself able then to pass this judgment and use this dude as a philosophical (laughs) example
3: of objectionable bad faith. To be charitable, let's just say that the waiter could be in bad faith. (laughs) I I don't know what Sartre would say, but to me, I don't think you can tell just from, I mean, you might be able to tell, I guess. But to me, the same waiter who's playing at being the waiter could be choosing that. Uh, Why not? Yes, if you say he's too solicitous and he creeps you out and the way he's... Yeah, okay, right. Right, no human being could
0: actually act like that. You're you're making yourself into an automaton that it's not, again, that far a jump from this sort of existentialist critique to the whole new work discussion that we have had before of like, there's no way that any thinking, reflective person could actually do this kind of job day after day unless they're bullshitting themselves and think that it's just kind of a law of nature and this is my lot in life. And so I just have to get up. If they actually had to exert the will and make the choice, day after day that I'm going to, maybe there are some people that working at this cafe is this is actually fits my temperament perfectly and I really enjoy it and I'm getting into it and it's my thing and I feel no more free than when I'm being an authentic waiter. But imagine that at KFC or whatever the most depressing place you can imagine. And this is, I think, kind of what he's imposing on this guy that like how depressing and awful to sort of make yourself into this automaton that no human being well, I want to say no human being can really do that. But given his emphasis on freedom, I don't even know that he can make that kind of claim.
3: The waiter is exercising his freedom. It's just that he's deceiving himself about it. I think that's the problem.
1: Mm. No, he's not deceiving himself about it. I mean, Sartre spends a fair amount of time in that bad faith section talking about how bad faith is not like lying to yourself or deceiving yourself. Because what he says... No,
3: he says it's a species of deceiving yourself.
1: Mm. Sartre at one point says in the bad faith section that To lie to oneself or to deceive oneself requires the knowledge that such and such is true and you're telling yourself that it's not, or such and such is false and you're telling yourself that it's not. Some part of you would have to know what it was you were deceiving yourself about in order to be able to deceive yourself.
3: I think he wants to say that is the structure, weirdly enough.
0: Kaufman actually translates bad faith as self deception. So I, I don't, I think there's a subtlety that we're losing there if you want to make that distinction.
3: So we shall willingly grant, so this is on page 109 of my PDF version. We shall willingly grant that bad faith is a lie to oneself on condition that we distinguish the lie to oneself from lying in general. And that's where he goes into this whole thing where lying in general, because you have two people, it's easy to explain. One knows it's a lie and willingly deceives, and the other doesn't know and they're deceived. It's the fact that bad faith involves lying to oneself that generates this ontological problem to which Freud is one possible solution that he rejects. And then his solution is somewhat unclear to me, but I think it involves this idea of what he calls the metastable and the evanescent position where you sort of get this quick alternation between knowing and not knowing.
0: Right. It can't be a straight up self-deception in the sense that you tell yourself a lie right. once and then you believe it. And now I'm acting according to that lie. This has to be something because you realize, you know, you're the one telling yourself a lie that sort of immediately collapses. So it has to be ever renewed, just in the way that Sartre thinks that all of our attitudes are ever renewed and a matter of spontaneous will, then my fooling myself is something likewise that is a matter of this evanescent switching It's like, yeah, so the
3: evanescent and metastable are meant to get at that, yeah, just that alternation that Mark is talking about. It's like jumping, so where Freud, you have this line between the conscious and the unconscious, and that's a sensor, and it keeps them apart. For Sartre, there's just a line within consciousness, and you're jumping from... Knowing to not knowing.
1: Can I read something a little later on? Yeah. 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 All right. So, page 49. The situation cannot be the same for bad faith if this, as we have said, is indeed a lie to oneself. To be sure, the one who practices bad faith is hiding a displeasing truth or presenting as truth a pleasing untruth. Bad faith then has, in appearance, the structure of falsehood. Only what changes everything is the fact that in bad faith, it is from myself that I am hiding the truth. Thus, the duality of the deceiver and the deceived does not exist here. Bad faith, on the contrary, implies, in essence, the unity of a single consciousness. Right. So, I guess in that sense, I understand what you're saying where it is self-deception, but he's saying that it's not self-deception in the sense of there's like two different parts of you and one is deceiving the other. That's not the way it works, which is why he doesn't like the Freudian solution, because in his mind, the Freudian solution posits some sort of autonomous other in the form of the unconscious that can kind of throw things at you from the outside and you can be deceived about them. It still maintains the structure of mitsein, as he says right above that.
3: The single consciousness means it's not like Mitsein. sign is self and other
1: no no i'm saying i think he thinks that the freudian answer still maintains that structure right
3: okay yeah
0: am i gonna have to just remove the references to sein, or are you gonna explain what it is
1: being with i just explained it it's just uh <laughs> yeah it's <laughs> it's the for itself and then the and then the other right
0: the so mit is just with in german that's all
1: yeah being for the other being with yes. others yeah But in this context, what it means is that the structure of lie or falsehood and deception, he says, there's a structure that holds when you're talking about others being involved, like you deceiving another or another deceiving you. And that structure doesn't make sense when you talk about you deceiving yourself, because it's not like there are two individuals involved, one of whom is withholding something or disclosing something falsely or whatever. You can't lie to yourself in that same way. Yeah,
3: the ontology can't be like the standard case of where there's two people and one is a deceiver and one is deceived.
1: The way we're
2: talking about it right now is the kind of self-deception the bad faith I have seems to be deeply involved with the relationship I have right now considering my facticity, the kinds of things I've done and how they structure what I am and where I am now. And then there's another aspect of it in which I deny my freedom, mm-hmm. which would be more forward-looking. And those two don't seem to be the same thing to me, but he seems to talk about both of them as bad faith.
0: Right, because they refer to the same ontological structure, the fact that we are both the transcendent and the
3: past. I mean, in both cases, we're using them to deceive ourselves, right? What am I gaining by
2: understanding it as deceiving myself, as opposed to understanding it's just a failure on my part? That... My will is incontinent with respect to what I even want to do.
3: Maybe he wants to get it more subtle cases than incontinence. Like take the example of the girl who's in bad faith with her date. Should I just read that? I have it highlighted right here. Sure. So the bad faith chapter has three parts. And
0: the first one is where he introduces the concept. And that's what Seth just read from. And that's where the whole discussion of Freud comes in. And he says, look, that didn't help. So really, to figure out what bad faith, let's just look at patterns of bad faith. That's the second part. And the first example he gives before the waiter example is this one. Take the example of a woman who has consented to go out with a particular man for the first time. She knows very well the intentions which the man who is speaking to her cherishes regarding her. She knows also that it will be necessary sooner or later for her to make a decision. But she does not want to realize the urgency. She concerns herself only with what is respectful and discreet in the attitude of her companion." She does not apprehend this conduct as an attempt to achieve what we will call the first approach. That is, she does not want to see the possibility of temporal development, which is conduct presents. That is, Right, she sex. doesn't want to see
3: this. <laughs> <laughs> that he wants sex. <laughs>
0: yeah. She restricts this behavior to what is in the present. She does not want to read in the phrases which he addresses to her anything other than their explicit meaning. Right, the qualities that attached to the person she's listening to in this way are fixed in a permanence like that of things which is no other than the projection of the strict present of the qualities into the temporal flux. This is because she does not quite know what she wants. She is profoundly aware of the desire which she inspires, but the desire cruel and naked which humiliate and horrify her. Yet she would find no charm in a respect which would be only respect. In order to satisfy her, there must be a feeling which is addressed wholly to her personality, i.e. to her full freedom, which would be a recognition of her freedom. But at the same time, this feeling must be holy desire. That is, it must address itself to her body as object. Because she's confused, she has these conflicting desires, right? I want to be apprehended for myself, my mind. But no, I want him to want my body. And instead of just acknowledging that both of these are desires, she's just conflating them and misrepresenting the situation and not being honest with herself and ultimately with the guy.
3: Well, she recognizes only one part of it, the transcendent part. So everything is esteem and respect. So no matter what he's doing, she's bracketing out or a Freudian might say repressing the sexual side of things.
2: In this example, the way in which she's in bad faith is her lack of self-understanding of herself as being confused or being maybe even confused as too strong a term just having complicated, ambiguous feelings in, that are in tension with one another and That she is in bad faith because she has the posture of certainty with respect to how she understands herself. The contrast I gave was an effort to say, well, if I did the story again in which I explained how she wasn't in bad faith, it would involve her doing X. And I tried to describe X as a way to understand what bad faith is by talking about what not being in bad faith would be like so I could see what the difference was.
3: Well, not being in bad faith in this case, it would be when he puts his hand on her hand. If she's not in bad faith, I think at that point she makes a decision. Now, someone might say, what if she just doesn't know at that point? I think that's kind of the problem with this example. (laughs) Of course, she's not going to make a decision at this point. And so, yes, you leave things ambiguous.
0: And she treats her hand as as a thing that she just disassociates herself from it.
3: She treats her hand as a thing. And then so he goes on to say, you know, she's disarmed all the actions of her companion, reducing them to only what they are, which is to say... It's just a hand on my hand. It's not a sign of anything more. It's not a sign of the possible sexual act to come. It's not a sign necessarily of his carnal desire. It's just a hand on my hand. She permits herself to enjoy his desire, but in order to do that, she has to strip all the sexual stuff away from it and see it only as him being chivalrous and respectful. I think, Dylan, you seem to be saying, well, what's the practical upshot of this? It's not as if we're talking about an example where someone fails to act or fails to make a decision or something like that. Or what are you saying?
2: Well, I think you're right that this is exactly how the distinction of bad faith would allow you to understand something more than just incontinent action, you know, failures of action. This example and the same thing with the waiter just clarifies for me. For all the talk of nothingness or all the talk of there being radical subjectivity and deep freedom is there's a kind of deep fetishizing <laughs> of certainty and of truth and it goes back to the reaction against God and I, now in the era of atheism, I need to understand how things are shaped by an understanding of the certainty of God and that, you know, we are the paper knives of the world but now we know we're not. And all throughout the whole presentation of bad faith, it's always contrasted with either I underestimate my certainty, so I'm lying to myself about the truth of my situation, or I overestimate my certainty, and that I don't understand my freedom, and I am in bad faith either way. (laughs) But there is such a thing as confusion, (laughs) and there is such a thing as ambiguity. If I have to make a decision, then I will make it in that moment. Right this is why I'm a pragmatist the whole discussion of sincerity right he has this long discussion in the second part after he gets upset with freud and sort of dismisses that he starts talking about how well maybe the alternative to bad faith is sincerity and he goes through this long process of trying to also show right. that sincerity is actually bad faith right. <laughs> and and the, and the way in which he does this is to juxtapose sincerity and say that well ultimately it's all based upon certainty and because you've overestimated your certainty then you can't be sincere on page 65 he says in the final analysis the goal of sincerity and the goal of bad faith are not so different to be sure there is sincerity which bears on the past and which does not concern us here so just as an aside he puts aside a huge part of sincerity which would be judgments of facticity I am sincere if I confess I have had this pleasure or that intention. We shall see that if the sincerity is possible, it is because in his fall into the past, the being of man is constituted as being in itself. But here our concern is only with the sincerity which aims at itself in present imminence. So his understanding of sincerity requires that you always have this fixed entity or fixed being that you compare against, and then he's going to deny that there's such a thing as this fixed entity and fixed being and that's why sincerity is bad faith in yep. order to be sincere you have to have an understanding of a fixed entity and oh well there is no fixed entity there's no fixed being of man so therefore sincerity is always bad faith yep so i just found that kind of weird
3: so it's the person who's always confessing their sins and that's enough they don't have to change their behavior they confess their sins sure. and they say this is attributable to my character
2: One could be sincerely confused. All of these examples seem to rest on a fixedness that seems to be a bit of a straw man. And the denial of sincerity as well as the argument of bad faith, while it goes a little ways, his examples and the analysis relies on a kind of deep fixity to what he's contrasting with. And it doesn't ring quite right to me.
3: Well, let's look at the practical upshots of the case with the girl. Okay. I mean, it could be that someone with exactly the same behaviors doesn't have to be someone who's in bad faith. So if she's aware of the sexual side of things and that possibility... She's not in bad faith and she might just leave her hand there just because she doesn't know. You know, maybe this guy is actually lascivious and she's deluding herself into thinking that this is all chivalry or that even that it's friendship. So you can see how someone might get themselves into trouble that way, right? There are real practical upshots to that sort of self-deception. But if she's conscious of the sexual undertones of things, she can navigate that situation in a way that's less likely to lead to problems. I mean, I think that is plausible. Right. Don't don't be passive. Yeah.
0: And I think back on, uh, you know, some of the decisions I've made, like I remember saying to people for years, like, oh, yeah, in high school, I was going to be on the debate team, but then I just couldn't make it for the first day. So I just didn't bother. Why did I feel the need to repeat that a number of times? Well, it was sort of self-conscious, you know, of course, that's a pitiful excuse that obviously I just didn't care about being on the debate team. But it's sort of picking on you know, why that was a hilarious yet true joke for me for some reason uh, was because it's reflecting on this structure of that. We feel so many things that we are just carried along uh, and we let ourselves be carried along. Maybe we just don't have the energy to focus on everything. And so we just, yeah, just let that thing take care of itself. And but that's all for Sartre. we We can't really ditch our responsibilities in that way.
3: Yeah, I mean, someone might come at this and criticize it and say, well, you know, it sounds like cognitive psychology or something, or if you just think more positively, or you have this conception that you're going to take responsibility for everything, or that somehow that's going to help. And as I've pointed out, I think actually people require therapeutic approaches and their characters are quite resistant to change. And they, but on the other hand, I think. There is a place for things like cognitive psychology, and there is a point to all of this. People do get into this bad habit of looking at the world in a way in which they um, become passive, and I think that's important. So even though I think I share many of Dylan's criticisms, I think there's something here we have to preserve.
2: Did any of this business with um, bad faith strike you as really Christian?
3: Yes, See, I was thinking about Nietzsche, and I was thinking Nietzsche would just think this is a repackaging of Christianity.
2: Especially Paul and the idea of what our own intents are, that what really matters is what's in our hearts. In this version, that's the authentic part. And there's a little twist on it in that we have a kind of duality going on. But the subjectivity has to do all with what's in our hearts. So the analysis of the man who's struggling with whether he goes off to war or stay with, with his mother or not, Whether or not that is the right thing for him to do, whether or not that denies his freedom or not, all turns on what's actually in his heart, so to speak.
0: I guess I don't agree there. I think that he was trying to say that there is no real fact of the matter about what was in his heart, that having the real motive to stay with his mom and feigning that motive because he's a coward, that those basically amount to the same thing and that there is no authenticity. And that, again, goes to this whole picture of the self.
3: That's true, though, but I think Dylan has a point in the sense that whether or not you're in bad faith is determined by whether or not you're engaging in the self-deception. So in that sense, it's in the heart. As far as real actions in the world, he can go either way, and you can't tell which action is right just by evaluating it from some moral perspective, right? Oh, he went to war and he should have stayed home with his mother. You can't say that. The only way to evaluate him morally is to say whether he's in bad faith. That does
2: sound like the crux of a moral judgment for Sartre.
3: Being in good faith would be part of the criteria of being moral. Yeah. You know, he does say people are the sum of their actions, right? Mm-hmm. One of the ways people excuse themselves is to say, well, I had all this potential. I had this genius, but because of circumstances, I couldn't fulfill that. He says, no, the genius of Proust is just the sum of the works of Proust. So we have to beware of attributing that kind of idea to him. But the Christian part of it, I would see as it seems important to him to be able to blame people, right? To be able uh-huh. to. Say, you're a coward, or you're scum.
0: Yeah, I want to return to that. One of our uh, listeners on Facebook specifically brought this up as something he wanted us to remark on. I remember being pretty alarmed by this, I guess, in the way that he was when I read this. It just seems to come out of nowhere. That he's giving all this structural, this is an existentialism is a humanism, this, here's my philosophy, but then toward the end, he's consequently, when I recognize as entirely authentic, that man is a being whose existence precedes his essence, that he's a free being who cannot in any circumstance, but will his freedom. At that same time, I realize that I cannot not will the freedom of others. Thus, in the name of that will to freedom, which is implied in freedom itself, I can form judgments upon those who seek to hide from themselves the holy voluntary nature of their existence and its complete freedom. Those who hide from this total freedom, in a guise of solemnity or with deterministic excuses, I shall call cowards. (laughs) Others who try to show that their existence is necessary when it is merely an accident of the appearance of the human race on earth, I shall call scum." (laughs) (laughs)
3: i wonder what the french is there though i'm not sure why they get (laughs) to be the scum (laughs) (laughs) it seemed a little arbitrary yes yeah but neither the cowards nor the scum can be identified except on the plane of strict authenticity which i think goes to Bilton's point
2: well, I'm really tempted to, I'm going to use this word, psychoanalyze the situation <laughs> because Sartre was a very public intellectual. He railed against lots of people, both during the war and then after the war as a communist and defending Maoist regime and the Soviet Union and all kinds of stuff. And he was very vocal about it. And he had a huge falling out with Camus that was very public as well. So he was a guy who wanted to be able to tell you you were full of shit. And he wrote scathing reviews of people's books and stuff. And so, somehow, he's going to have to incorporate that ability to tell you you're full of shit into his philosophy, right? Otherwise, he's inconsistent.
0: So, it's one of those things of just somebody taking their temperament and like writing it into their philosophy.
2: Well, I don't want to minimize it, but I want to say that he clearly wants that to be the case. That this issue of responsibility is important to him. So, to me, when I hear him say that, I'm thinking of Vichy France. And I'm thinking of the capitulation of a certain part of the French government to the Germans rather than fighting against. And that he was part of the resistance and that it was really important that you be able to say that, look, you were cowards. Your capitulation was a denial of France and a denial of freedom and a denial
0: of our humanity.
2: So his argument
0: has to make room for that. I just find it strange that he has this focus on sincerity and existentialism is a humanism, which follows at least what Heidegger is known for as well. This We have to be authentic in the face of the they. We yeah. can't let our being for others define us for ourselves. Being authentic is to acknowledge your freedom. But then in being in nothingness, which was written before that, he has the space to really stretch and discuss at length the subtleties here. He says here, page 62 at the bottom, How can we blame another for not being sincere or rejoicing our own sincerity since this sincerity appears to us at the same time to be impossible?
3: Yeah.
2: On the one hand, he is appealing to being authentic. And that's where I see this horn of responsibility. And on the other hand, he wants to appeal to our freedom. And part of that freedom, because he wants to be so radical about the notion of freedom, then that means at some level there is no authenticity to be had, period. Because there's no bottom line, right? We are who we are, but we are nothing.
3: Yeah, he actually undermines the possibility of (laughs) authenticity, if we're thinking of that in terms of sincerity. Because he sets up a situation which you can't win or in which it's very hard to win.
0: Let's see. Is there anything from the last section that we want to uh, put out there? I'm looking at this example of Pierre. I believe that my friend Pierre feels friendship for me. I believe it in good faith. I believe it, but I do not have for it any self-evident intuition. For the nature of the object does not lend itself to intuition. I believe it. As I allow myself to give in to all impulses to trust it, I decide to believe in it, and to maintain myself in this decision. I conduct myself, finally, as if I were certain of it. And all this in the synthetic unity of one and the same attitude. This, which I define as good faith, is what Hegel would call the immediate. It is simple faith. It seems like he's saying, look, we're always going to have to, really to have any beliefs at all. Right. If we say that nothing has an essence, or at least people don't have essences, but we want to intelligently act around each other, if I say, you're a good and faithful friend to me, I have to somehow do that in a way that doesn't deny your freedom, that you could just decide to be an ass to me at any point. So fine, I'm not going to treat you as an object. I acknowledge the possibility that you could do that. I just don't think you will, because I don't want to think you will. Hmm. Title of third section is The Faith yeah. of Bad Faith. This faith involved. So you could sort of see how it could go too far. If you believe it, despite all evidence, then you'd be denying the facts. You'd be self-deceiving. But as long as you're sort of doing this intentionally, he doesn't seem to have a problem with it. Or is he saying even good faith is bad faith <laughs> because it's all faith and that's
3: the problem? Well, when he's talking about bad faith as a faith and the project of bad faith must be itself in bad faith, right? We can't have this reflective access to our own bad faith, which is in good faith that would screw things up. So the sort of self-referential reflective moment is another bad faith moment in our attitude towards our bad faith, which is why he goes on to say it's not real reflectivity because if it were, I think it would be in good faith. And then he goes on to say it's really spontaneous. So it's not like we're making a deliberative decision. We do it as we sleep and as we dream. Then he talks about this non-persuasion thing where you see evidence of the true position But you just sort of say, eh, I'm not fully persuaded by that, and you let it pass by. He's trying to get more of the phenomenology of what bad faith would mean. So what does good faith mean? I think it means a certain level of reflective self-awareness. Even if we aren't saying good faith is necessarily deliberative and rational in that classical sense of free will, it's at least self-aware and truly reflective, maybe. I'm just speculating here because we didn't get much of a positive account of good faith.
0: Right. In the last couple pages here of this chapter, and this third section is definitely the shortest, he's talking about kind of, I make the leap, I decide to believe that Pierre is my friend. But he says, to believe is to know that one believes. And to know that one believes is no longer to believe, which is why he would ultimately think that theism, that faith in God, as Uh one would advocate for it, doesn't really make sense. Because once you say, I'm making a choice to believe, you're not actually believing anymore. Thus, to believe is not to believe any longer. Because that is only to believe <laughs> this in the unity of one and the same non-thetic self-consciousness. I don't
3: know
0: what that is. <laughs> right, right. In yeah. other words, non-deliberative. To be sure, we have forced the description of the phenomenon by designate it with the word to know. Non-thetic consciousness is not to know, right? It's more spontaneous yeah. than that. Yeah. Thus, the non-thetic consciousness of believing is destructive of belief. But at the same time, the very law of the pre-reflective cogito implies that the being of believing ought to be the consciousness of believing. All right, here's a thus. (laughs) What are we supposed to get out of this? Thus, belief is a being which questions its own being, which can realize itself only in its destruction, which can manifest itself to itself only by denying itself. It is a being for which to be is to appear, and to appear is to deny itself. To believe is to not believe. (laughs) To be sure, I should not be able to hide from myself that I believe in order not to believe, and that I do not believe in order to believe. (laughs) But the subtle, total annihilation of bad faith by itself cannot surprise me. It exists at the basis of all faith. What is it then? At the moment when I wish to believe myself courageous, I know that I'm a coward. And this certainly would come to destroy my belief. But first, I'm not any more courageous than cowardly if we were to understand this in the mode of the being
3: in itself. We can't make those descriptions at all, I guess. Right. Can't say I am courageous.
0: Right. in saying you're courageous or not courageous and saying someone really is your friend or is not your friend, there's just something hinky about it. We might do it for
3: practical reasons so it almost sounds like there's a little bit of a skeptical strain here where we refrain from making judgments right
0: yeah but so clearly how horrible would life be if we did not take this step which it seems like he's advocating as he describes it in deciding that pierre is my friend until he gives me some reason to think. but i decide
3: that not because he is my friend i just decide he's my friend that's what i will
0: so this drives toward a more general i don't know if this is an objection to sartre or a directive of how you should interpret Sartre to make him plausible. The way to make him not plausible is to read him as being very shrill and condemning and saying, you are responsible for everything, so you have to pay attention deeply to everything that you do, and you can't just be passive in anything. You have to be hyper-aware all the time, and what a horrible life that would be. The entire reason why I thought I was cool in the, my little story about the debate team—I let fate choose whether I was going to be on the debate team or not—is because it expresses that I'm too cool to worry mm. about everything. That there is something about the good life that means that you focus on some things—the things that matter—and then other things, even if you acknowledge, way, they're your choice. You don't have bad faith and say it's the world deciding for me. You, but you just let it happen. Again. To compare, as he does in the existentialism and humanism, but we saw even more in the Nietzsche gay science, that living your life to being an art, that if that is the task of existentialism, that it's not obeying some pre-existent law, but it's creating something, creating your values, creating your life, then of course you're not going to create something which involves this shrill, constant, hyper-vigilant bullshit. That can't be What Sartre is recommending. And if he is, then fuck that. Read some other existentialist. There has to be some way to balance things out and actually make your life into something that is pleasing. But yeah, you have to acknowledge that you are responsible for that. But what does that acknowledgement mean? It can't mean that you walk around feeling a very Christian sort of guilt of the sort that Nietzsche Mm -hmm. would make fun of you for.
3: Yeah. It's hard to say what that responsibility means in this scenario, if not guilt. I mean, maybe responsibility is just that the phenomenology of making these choices with awareness as opposed to making them with self-deception, mm-hmm. bad faith. Maybe that's just what responsibility means.
0: Right. And what does that mean with regard to your own emotions, say? Because he really thinks that we have a lot of responsibility. and I think that's a direction that we can go in the future for this. We've talked about reading uh, Bob Solomon's book on the yeah. passions, and that definitely comes right out of mm. Sartre, really stressed this judgmental responsibility focused side of sartre so that would be a natural next step so far in the existentialism as a human essay, certainly it's all focused on action but again that interpretation which i'll admit that i got from solomon but i'm seeing here in parts of both of these essays is not just about your actions that you choose is that you choose your interpretations yeah. that you choose your whole world really because what is fundamental is being in the world is this unity. And when you abstract from that and say, well, there's things that I'm confronting in the world, there's obstacles. And then there's me and my consciousness going against those obstacles. You're kind of bullshitting yourself. You have to understand that you are responsible for those obstacles being obstacles at all. If you did not approach the world with a bunch of purposes and things in mind, you would not see that as an obstacle. So it implies part of your responsibility is that you have created yourself and you are malleable. And the way that really comes through in the existentialism in his humanism essay is his discussion of, again, I've referred to it about recognizing other people's freedom. It's a discussion of morality and specifically the notion that every man can understand every other man. He says that because we all share the same human condition, right? Not the mm-hmm, human right. nature. There's no such thing as human nature, but the human condition as being free The moral choices that I face and the ones that you face are not ultimately that different. We're still dealing with the same phenomenology of being a person. We're still all in danger of falling into bad faith. We have the same difficulty with belief itself that I was just talking about, that there's something self-contradictory about it, that the self is something self-contradictory, that we are a transcendence, yet we are a created thing in the world So, if you deny that of other people, if you say, I can't understand those other people, if you externalize them and make it us versus them, if you do most of the things we would object to Mm -hmm. politically, then you are in the same way denying your own freedom.
1: My reading of this short excerpt, including the part that I read in error, Sartre was trying to say that the sort of radical freedom that he's proposing is a radical freedom that says that If you think that it's possible for you to lay the foundation for your human existence somewhere, whether it be in God, whether it be in consciousness, in identification somehow with your facticity or some concept like I am the role that I play, you're mistaken. His radical freedom and radical form of existentialism is really just about the fact that you're always unsettled you're always in a position where you can't stop and pause and take a stand on this or that thing with respect to your identity or your way of being in the world. It's unsettling in the sense that Wes has pointed out. He's not really providing a, here's my alternative to so-and-so's Formulation or so and so's position. What he's basically saying is you have to embrace the radical uncertainty, the radical freedom, which is to say that at every given moment, you are always in question. You are always constituted by the nothingness that is that possible future. And that's just what it means to be a human being. And the consequences of this are the fact that you kind of have to create your own meaning and then he goes on to talk about how this has implications for being with others who are in the same state and morality and so on. It didn't rub me quite the wrong way, as it seems to have rubbed you guys. I found no exit to be... It took me a while to understand how this was illustrative because it was the first thing I read, so I had to go back, reconceptualize it. I do think that Sartre's language is unnecessarily complicated. He's repetitive. Being in nothingness does not read the same way that, for example, being in time does. Because Sartre is very fond of the rhetorical device where he says, what could it be but this? As if that's an argument in favor. Like, how could we not understand this as this? And I'm not fond of that style of presentation. Seeing existentialism as a humanism, which is very readable and concise and kind of gets right to the point, and contrasting that with being in nothingness raises all the other points that we've made many times over the years in this podcast about good writing versus bad writing and whether people willingly engage in it or not. So you were
0: just unfavorably comparing Sartre to Heidegger? I'm
1: unfavorably comparing being in nothingness to being in time.
0: Uh, see, I got exactly the opposite, that I felt like, well, this is actually lucid. I actually understand what's being said here. I'm not saying I followed every step, but it almost makes it worth
1: that Heidegger did this stuff. So, that's just our different temperaments, let's just say. No, being in nothingness, I wouldn't call it lucid. It was a lot more understandable, but it's understandable. The style and the rhetorical devices that Sartre employs are quite different from what Heidegger does. The way Sartre does it, it got annoying after a while. I didn't get annoyed with Heidegger. It's, just, it, it's hard, and then you're like, oh, God, what the fuck is he trying to say? With Sartre, I was like, oh, my God. Do I have to read the next paragraph or can I just skip? Is it going to make a new point or is it just going to be the same thing?
0: It's a fat book. It doesn't deserve to be
1: that fat. Yeah, I had the same <laughs> problem with Rawls. Why take 10 pages to write what you can write in two? See, I
3: didn't have that reaction to his writing.
1: I mean, I enjoyed the humanism
3: essay, although I read that he regretted that. It's a lecture, right? Right. He, he regret- uh, it was
0: barely proofread. Stanford Encyclopedia even said it was him on the wing. Like, really? Did he make it up? Surely he wrote it down. But if he'd written it down and he was reading it, then they wouldn't have had to transcribe it.
3: Yeah. I mean, it's plausible you that it's, it might be improvised. Yeah, extemporaneous. Yeah. Being in nothingness, which I read in grad school and I really enjoyed it. And then this section, I tried to, <laughs> at first I gave a quick read to the bad faith section and then I realized I hadn't understood it. And then I went through and tried to summarize each point. as a systematic argument to each section, I think even though I disagree with the criticisms of Freud and so on. And then overall, there's a lot that's appealing to this idea of responsibility and this kind of broadening of the notion of responsibility so that it's even pre-reflective and spontaneous, right? So that responsibility that you run around feeling guilty, but could mean something like an awareness, an awareness of one's possibilities, an awareness of the ways in which things stem from you. So you might typically think, well, yes, this sort of behavior comes from me in the sense that cutting comes from a paper knife. It's attributable to my character and it's something I would love to change. Whereas the alternate way of thinking about it is just to see it as, I chose this. Yes, there might be some tendency, my character towards it. There's a point where he talks about we are responsible even for our passions. So something like the existentialist doesn't believe in the power of passion. Man is responsible for his passion. Which seems on the one level absurd, but depending on what you mean by responsibility, I think there's something appealing to that picture. On the other hand, from my Freudian bias, I think these are real problems that people confront, right? They have characterological tendencies to do things that are self-destructive or bad for them or to not fulfill their potential. And how do you solve that problem? And I think a therapeutic approach, and that doesn't necessarily mean psychoanalysis. By therapeutic, I mean, right, it's not simply the product of thinking. It's the product of, so like Buddhism, we describe that in one of our episodes as a therapeutic viewpoint where you have a practice, you do certain things, it could be yoga. You go through these activities that can be transformative and those are a necessary link. You know, there's always the danger of something like this sounding something like Ayn Rand, where you simply will yourself out of being, let's say, the person that you are. To add in the no exit, so one of the ways you can be in bad faith, right, is to attribute your behaviors to circumstance. Another way is to try and get out of... So Garcin, at the end of No Exit, he really wants to be seen by Estelle as not a coward, right? And that's where he's looking. Instead of owning up to cowardice, he's trying to escape it. One way to escape it, again, is to appeal to circumstance. But another way is to appeal to the other, which sort of Sartre kind of briefly hints at in certain places of these readings. We can escape into others' views of us. And so I think... The concept of a hell here where it just simply consists of putting people together and allowing them to use each other in that way, use each other to avoid the position of responsibility. I think that's one of the basic ideas there.
0: As is the idea when I read No Exit originally in undergrad or whenever it was, it just seems like, why are these people being such rigid bricks? I don't, you know, why don't they just adjust to each other? and figure out that the other person is not going to give them what they initially wanted and sort of adapt to that. And so that's again, an illustration of that we are responsible for our own attitudes. These people could change if they want to, but they're not going to. That's what's ultimately wrong with them. Why they deserve to be in hell. (laughs) It's because they are unable to change themselves or not unable. They're unwilling.
3: Yeah. And arguably, right. And you know, it's just a parable and, Mm -hmm. Of course, there's no God for Sartre and there is no hell, really. But hell is the situation of bad faith, let's say. Hell is other people doesn't simply mean I'm stuck with irritating people. It means hell is the certain kinds of people who allow you to sustain the position of bad faith or that you use for bad faith.
0: Yeah, I mean, other people can cement you in a certain way that they think something of you. They're treating you like an object. That is a very common way. That people cannot deal with each other properly. But why that would be so hellish?
3: Well, he needs Estelle not to think of him as a coward, right? He needs to escape his cowardice. And he needs, in this case, other people are the only way to do that. But of course, they're not going to give that to him.
0: Or Estelle needs physical validation by a
3: man. Right.
1: But that's not really validation. He thinks he needs to have somebody tell him that he's not a coward. But even if somebody does, that's not going to change the fact that the issue is... To go back to Dylan's point, his own evaluation of himself in his own heart, he'll still be a coward. So it's a weird thing to say that hell is other people when it kind of seems like really it's like hell is yours <laughs> hell is yourself and other people are the canvas on which you like play out your dramas.
0: Right. That we exist in being for others, and so it's the other people that is giving our own self-immolation its particular flavor.
3: Yeah. It's a vehicle. So you might think that <laughs> well, what's the way out of hell, right? What's the way out of hell for Garçon? Is it to say to himself, I am a coward to make that admission. What I did was cowardly. Well, from our reading of the bad faith section, maybe not, right? Because that is just to give himself this in itself characterization and to deny it his transcendence. Arguably, it would be some sort of taking of responsibility, right? But it's unclear how you spell that out. There's got to be a way out
1: of hell for Sartre. I agree with you. I'm unclear on how you spell it out, but I want to hold out the possibility that there may not be a way out of hell.
3: Yeah. I mean, he does title it No Exit, but <laughs> but the No Exit is self-imposed, right? That's very important to say that it's not a circumstance. Yeah. No Exit is something people are doing to themselves if Sartre wants to be consistent.
1: To pin it back onto what Mark was saying, uh, somehow the answer would be to not be for others, which isn't really possible,
0: well, it's not possible to, right, in general, not be for others. But right. you could not have those particular needs that each of them has, you know, it ends up that Garson actually needs a validation from Inez in particular because he figures out that Estelle is really too vapid, and is not going to be able to even understand what she's saying if she says, you weren't
3: a coward. Oh, right. Yeah. So right.
0: he needs Inez. Inez is going to have none of that. Inez wants to dominate Estelle and make her her little pet. <laughs> And that's not going to happen. And then Estelle wants Garson to just be her physical presence. And Garson can't do that because Inez is there. Do you think it's just a matter of the amusing quirk of the art itself that he makes it a triangle in this way just to kind of... But really, you could write an equally compelling story in which it's two people that are sort of torturing each other. I guess three is nice because it gives you a
3: sense of the public. Don't forget the valet. That was a very important part. <laughs> <laughs> have you no brains? He does. He does judge <laughs> at the beginning. Now, that's a good question. Whether a triad is, could you do it with two people?
0: Maybe like a couple can fool themselves. They can be together in their delusion. Folly. I Yeah. Right. Garcon just wants everybody to just shut up and then he can be with his own thoughts. And that would be enough for him, at least during some of the time, because then he would be able to kind of delude himself more thoroughly. He could sort of let his fancy fly where it may. And there are so many examples of couples where they sort of have their own, it may not even be the same, it could be like a very abusive, one-sided relationship, but they share this sort of warped take. And once a third comes along and is able to get an objective view on that and say, man, that is fucked up, then that falls apart. The illusion breaks. So three is sort of the magic number where you've reached society.
1: hmm I certainly think the three is more interesting because if it was two and you were both simultaneously unable to give and the other person was unable to give you what you need, that there's a tension being oriented towards two directions. You're being asked to satisfy one person, but your desire to be satisfied is pointed towards the other, as opposed to if you're in a dyad, the stuff being reflected kind of going out and coming back from the same source ultimately would suggest some kind of resolution in a way that the triad doesn't, I think. You can imagine that if it was just Estelle and garcon that eventually they would start to lie to each other or make it work or something they would chill out
0: they would just chill out with with inez there it's not gonna happen yeah yeah
3: so inez runs interference on their little possible duo because she laughs at them there's a point where it's possible that garcon might be deceived by estelle and take her saying that he's not a coward at face value, but Inez laughs and prevents that. And then if it were just Inez and Estelle, Inez might have a chance of dominating her, but she's distracted by the masculine presence. So Inez has no chance with Garza present.
2: It would be a completely different kind of play if it was just two people or one person. I mean, inevitably with one person, you would have them having conflict with their sort of circumstance or their container or whatever. And so, there would be have to be a kind of second character, be it the room or be it the world or be it the circumstance. The flashbacks. Yeah, or that too, yeah, I suppose. In terms of the Sartre itself and the other two pieces we read, I found myself continually intrigued and thought, wow, this is really interesting. And then he would take it to a direction that I thought, wow, that just doesn't make any sense. <laughs> So, I found myself in this this kind of constant tension where bad faith and the notion of not understanding oneself and lying to oneself about one's facticity as well as about one's possibility, there's large parts of that that sounded right. But then we go down this direction of there being the impossibility of sincerity and that sincerity and bad faith are the same thing and he has this continual recurrence of undermining himself in some respect. And I saw why he would do that. It goes back to the radical subjectivity and the lack of determinism. While constantly returning to that, he juxtaposes that radical uncertainty with aspects of radical certainty, things that we actually know. And then, so I mentioned this earlier, just this obsession with either undermining certainty or pointing to what we were actually certain at. And it reminded me of Descartes in that respect. I found his solution for these tensions in our psyches and in the world and the way we understand ourselves and our interaction with each other and the world, I guess it's just kind of off that it was a combination of, you know, a sort of of two hard-nosed and shrill on the one hand and mealy-mouthed and vapid on the other. I didn't know what to do with it at the end. I found myself picking and choosing parts that seemed to make sense and be consistent, but I felt at the end there was a kind of deep inconsistency about it despite his call for consistency. And though we talked about the responsibility and what he said about it, but I have no idea where that comes from in his understanding either of bad faith or of Our contingency or our freedom, except when he says that our responsibility is a consequence of our radical freedom. And I I sort of get that. But to me, that was just a kind of declaration on his part that just seemed deeply in tension with the plethora of possibility that he also wanted to maintain. Because it seems to me the responsibility at the end of the day, you either have to say we have a duty and a constraint. That is part of that responsibility, or we have a authenticity that inhabits that responsibility. I found his conclusions in deep tension with one another at the end.
0: Next time, we're going to be rejoined by your favorite guest, Philosophy Bro, who will introduce us to the wonders of G.E.M. and Scombe. We'll be reading her essay, Modern Moral Philosophy from 1958, and some parts of her 1957 book, Intention. We are supported by your donations. Go to partiallyexaminedlife.com to make a contribution or to become a PEL citizen. And I'm not going to read the donors this time because we're running long. So just thanks to all of you. And thanks to you guys. Thank
1: you guys for another great year.
0: Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Good Good night. Good night. Good night.
4: Despair changes, and I'm wondering if it's ever gonna come. I'm fiddling with a locket that I swipes in Kmart, and I'm feeling like a viscous pool. Minnesota Freak Gunning down these points that are not where I belong Though the violence is ineffable It is nonetheless still wrong Minnesota Freak ducking angel, Bob's arch-fleek Avalanche of shame Though I'm fuzzy on the details i at least destroy the brain I wonder if the average fellow Wants to wreck his brain Or if someone he wants knew Was she the type that looked for something, well, low play? Or was she the type that thought death was okay? Minnesota Freak, done down these parts, that are not where I belong. For the violence is ineffable. It's i still wrong. Minnesota in a sort of freak. Flipping off his heart much march up in a sneak. Is the aftermath still freezing? When your face is full of in a sort of freak. Pushing desperately to undermine this robe. For the violence isn't obvious, it is nasty and it's so, made sort of freak. Turning up his mind and dusting off his gun, and I'm quite sure that he's not the only one.